I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles again to uh, the book of the Psalms. Our scripture reading is Psalm 22, the first half, verses 1 through 20. We're going to be continuing in, in this particular psalm and looking, as we have been stating over the last several weeks, looking uh, at uh, the teachings uh, that we find in the Psalms of David concerning Christ. Psalm 22, uh, beginning at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the, from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Let's pray. We would ask Holy Spirit, uh, for you to grant wisdom and understanding and truth as we look at your word today. We pray that we would see the preaching of Christ in this passage. And we pray that in seeing Christ, we would once again renew our love to him, our desire to follow him faithfully. We would ask, Father, that as Jesus intended for those who are his disciples, that we would be salt and light to this world, uh, to the generation in which we live. In Christ's name, amen. Now, in, in case you may have missed it, uh, this particular Sunday is the closest Sunday to October 31st in the month of October. Now, I mention October 31st not because it's the culture's uh, treatment of Halloween, 
But I mention October 31st because historically, 502 years ago, on the 31st of October, 1517, uh, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses for debate uh, to the uh, uh, Wittenberg uh, Castle Church door. And historically, uh, we look back to that as the launching of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, so many within reformationally-minded churches, those who understand their historic uh, Protestant uh, foundations. We recognize this as Reformation Sunday. Uh, that is to say, the Sunday that's closest to uh, that actual day in history. Uh, but what we remember at that point is that the Reformation signaled nothing less than in every bit of the recovery of the gospel. Uh, that the medieval church in all of its ritualism and even its departure doctrinally from the truth, the medieval church had actually obscured the good news about Christ in such a way to such a manner that what people believed as the basis of their salvation was far from the actual truth of what the scriptures proclaimed. And so the time of the Reformation was a recovery of the supreme authority of scripture. It was a recovery of the, the nature of God's grace and grace alone which saves people. Uh, it exalted the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ. It pointed to the fact that the mechanism by which we are saved is not our good works, but it is actually our faith and trust in Christ and all that he has done. And the recognition that the gospel ultimately, by what we believe and how we live because of what we believe, all of the gospel leads to one final end ordained by God, and that is his glory. That the gospel is not about glorifying human beings. It's not about giving people self-fulfillment. It's not about making you live a better life. That the gospel is ultimately to the praise of the glory of God and God's grace. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 sets that out so very strongly. That all that God has done to bring about the salvation of human beings out of his great love for them, ultimately is that God himself would be glorified. Now, this gospel has been attacked time and time and time again within the history of the church. In fact, it was even attacked in the very first uh, uh, generation of those who were Christians. And so you find the New Testament addressing that issue as it does in the book of jo Jude, for instance. Book of Jude, one chapter. So verse 4. Look at what Jude says. Uh, For certain people have crept in unnoticed. That is, they came in and didn't say, hey, I'm a wolf in sheep's clothing, and it's my desire to turn you away from Jesus and to give you a substitute for the gospel. No, they, they didn't act that way. They crept in unnoticed. And he goes on to say, who long ago were designated for condemnation. That is, even as they creep into the church... God has already designated their destiny. These folks are going to undergo condemnation. And then he goes on to say, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Some translations point out into a license and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So there, at, in, within the first generation of those who were Christians, while apostles were still alive, 
we have people creeping into the church, seeking to destroy the grace of the gospel and seeking to pervert the calling and ministry of Jesus Christ as the sacrificial atonement for our sins. The problem of ungodly people infiltrating the church has never gone away. And it's always been the goal of those who infiltrate the church this way to change the faith of the church so that the faith of the church looks like something else and to change an understanding of the work of Christ so it really looks like something else, uh, to actually attempt to change what the church stands for in terms of its being God's institution in the world. Now, in the 19th century, and I have to credit Al Mohler uh, on his Friday episode of The Briefing, Al Mohler, president of uh, uh, Southern Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, a great Southern Baptist, a great theologian, and a great analysis of current trends. But he, he brought in, within his program uh, the mention of J.C. Ryle, John Charles Ryle, who became the first bishop of Liverpool uh, over in England, uh, uh, an Anglican, but a godly Anglican who was very concerned that within the Church of England at that time, there had been all sorts of things that was taking the theology of the Church of England away from the gospel. And so Ryle writes this relatively small book of about 75 pages called Knots Untied. And in his book, Knots Untied, he begins with setting forth five principles of the gospel, five things absolutely necessary in order to hold to an evangelical or a gospel faith. Now, let me mention just the first three of these. He says, first of all, you have to recognize the Bible, the scriptures, as the ultimate authority over everything with respect to Christianity, everything with respect to our faith, everything with respect to our practice. The Bible is supreme. It governs everything. So the second principle, the evangelical principle, the principle of the gospel, is to recognize the, 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 the corruption and brokenness and depravity of human beings. That human beings are not brought into this world naturally good. Human beings have inherited the sin of Adam, were born corrupted, and we are in our very nature opposite to all the things that God would want us to be. The third thing, the third principle, he said is this, that the only remedy for man's broken relationship with God is Christ. The only remedy. Christ, his atoning work, his, his great sacrifice upon the cross, that Christ has obtained by his own blood a salvation that can be offered to all, that is fit for all, that would be sufficient for all of those who would trust in him. Pointing out that what Christ has done in the work upon the cross, quoting him, will cancel the guilt and the power and the consequences of sin for all those who are placed their faith and trust in Christ. And so we see that what Ryle was emphasizing uh, were those critical elements necessary with respect to the gospel. 
You've got to believe that the Bible is the Word of God. You've got to believe that human beings need the grace of God because of their depravity. You've got to believe that Jesus Christ is God's all-sufficient remedy in His work upon the cross to bring salvation to needy souls. What's fascinating is that those three principles have a striking parallel to what we find in the first half of Psalm 22. I, I pointed out last week that Psalm 22... I'm going to stop for a moment. John, will you raise the temperature in here? I am freezing. <laughs> I want to preach a little hotter. <laughs> the striking parallel between what Ryle says and what we find in Psalm 22... Uh, we noticed last week that Psalm 22, by virtue of its presentation of fulfilled prophecy, demonstrates the supernatural nature of the Word of God as the Word of God. This is God's Word. Only God could cause prophecy a thousand years earlier to be so minutely fulfilled in the constellation of things we find in Psalm 22 that are fulfilled in the passion of Christ in his crucifixion. Uh, only God could do that. So Psalm 22, the first half, points to the supreme nature of Scripture as God's word and therefore of supreme authority. But I mentioned last week there were two other themes that needed to be understood, which we're going to be looking at today. Psalm 22, in Psalm 22, Christ proclaims the evil of human beings. The great evil of human beings. And therefore, with respect to salvation, their desperate need for grace. And then the third great theme proclaimed in Psalm 22 is Christ speaking to his own death as of the very purpose of God in order to die not for himself, but on behalf of others striking parallel between what the bishop, the good bishop, said, these are the essential first principles of the gospel. And what we find in Psalm 22, proclaimed in the voice of Christ a thousand years before Jesus actually came into this world. Now, what I want us to understand this morning, the main concern that we're going to be looking at is this. The church in every generation has faced a constant pressure to turn away from the gospel and to turn to something else. And out of looking at these two major points now out of Psalm 22, and really all three together, the scripture, the nature of man, and the nature of the atonement, the, the responsibility that we have as Christians is to be faithful to Christ. Faithful to him which means always recognizing the human need for salvation and always recognizing that that salvation can only be found in Christ. When you look at the world, when you shop and see the person who's serving you, when you drive down the road and see crazy people driving, sometimes yourself, you need to be recognizing that we live in a world where people, human beings, are broken in every way. 
They need the grace of God. And you're a Christian. You have that grace in terms of knowing Christ and having the gospel. We must live in such a way that we're always aware of these things. And then to recognize that the pressure of the world, a satanic kind of pressure, is to corrupt the church, to blind the church from seeing what is going wrong with human beings and obscuring the fact that Christ is the only means of salvation. And that's what Jude was saying. Contend for this faith. And so we need to contend for the faith as well. Now, we're going to look at two major things then. We're going to look at the evil of men and the purpose of God. The evil of men and the purpose of God. And the evil of men substantiates the need for salvation and therefore substantiates the need for grace. Um, I want to begin by quoting just a, a couple of lines from a great hymn writer, Thomas Kelly. Back in 1804, uh, he wrote this. It's in the Trinity Hymnal 257. This would be part of the third stanza. So looking at the evil of men and Jesus being crucified, Kelly says this, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Kelly is saying, when you look at the cross and what they did to Jesus, you can't think of sin lightly. And you have to recognize how great human guilt is that put Jesus on the cross. What Christ teaches about the crucifixion is that it is the index of human sinfulness. Like Kelly says, if you want to measure how sinful human beings are, look at the cross. Look at the crucifixion. Why? Because here is the Son of God, the innocent Son of God, being crucified by human beings. Now, what we also see is we... we appreciate this, what was done to Jesus on the cross, presented in Psalm 22, is that this perpetration of evil by human beings against another human being is not an unusual occurrence in human history. That is to say, it is not an unusual occurrence for human beings to perpetrate evil against other human beings. Rather, it's the common condition of fallen humanity that people rather routinely perpetrate evil against other human beings. Now, so look at how this happens. And the psalm presents us. Christ teaches us how do human beings perpetrate evil against other human beings. And the two principal ways we find here, which are fairly comprehensive in terms of evil people doing evil to others, is in terms of physical abuse and verbal abuse. I'm not sure I know of any other kind of abuse because when we talk about emotional abuse, we're talking about the consequence of physical abuse and verbal abuse, right? What's interesting is that when Jesus says, and points out his own experience here, physical abuse and verbal abuse, it really corresponds to our very nature because we're composite, we're composite creatures as human beings. We are bodies and souls. We can be harmed physically, and we can be harmed 
spiritually in our souls. We can be virtually destroyed in these ways because that's our nature. We would also say this, that we know this from just common human experience. Physical abuse injures people in their souls. And verbal abuse will actually compromise people's physical health. There is that psychosomatic union in terms of us being bodies and souls so that we cannot receive abuse from another human being without it doing us damage. And Psalm 22 rather graphically highlights abuse from the standpoint that Christ was physically abused and Christ was verbally abused in his crucifixion. Now, we looked at the physical aspects of this last week. Uh, Christ is tortured and he's tormented in his crucifixion. The Roman soldiers are the perpetrators, but all of the Jewish leadership and the Jewish population at their most significant religious worship of the year, the time of the Passover, they are all together in agreeing with and supporting the Roman soldiers, the Gentiles, putting Christ to death in this manner. Shall I release to you Barabbas, Pilate says? No. What about Jesus of Nazareth? Crucify him. The multitudes cried out, crucify him. So with respect to the physical abuse done to Christ, uh, we cannot attribute this simply to the machinations of the Roman government. It was all of them together involved in and culpable for the physical abuse done to Christ. But we also looked last week at the fact that there's this tremendous verbal abuse that we find presented in this psalm. Uh, the Gentile soldiers, the Roman soldiers, they picked up on what the others were saying and they began to mock Christ as well. Uh, the, the kinsmen of Jesus, the, the Jews themselves, from the leaders uh, to the common spectators to even those Jewish criminals upon the cross, they were all abusing Jesus verbally and the things that they said. It's the common condition of fallen humanity to be involved in the perpetration of evil. Now, I want to say this very carefully. Just because Jesus was the Son of God, do not think that physical abuse and verbal abuse did not do its damage to him. I don't know, somehow people think that, yeah, Jesus was crucified, but his non-physical nature was invulnerable to what was being said. Uh-uh. That's not the true Christ. That's not Christ who is truly human. The Christ who is truly human felt within his soul what verbal abuse does to human beings, even as he felt within his body what physical abuse does to human beings. Now, how do we know that? He says so. Look at verse 6, where Christ is proclaiming the sense of his identity and what he felt as he was being abused 
by the Romans and his Jewish kinsmen. Verse 6, he says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Now, consider these words. I am a worm and not a man. Jesus is identifying what his sense of identity was under this mocking and verbal assault and abuse by those who were involved in his crucifixion. He's speaking. Yes, he's the Son of God. He's God incarnate. But in his human nature, he is speaking about how belittled and demeaned he was and how it felt to be belittled and demeaned and despised in this way. A worm is the lowest of creatures. It crawls upon the ground. And for Christ to say this is to Christ to say that he is being treated as a person who has no value. He's emphasizing how much he was despised. And we see here that this affected Christ. That Christ felt what it feels like to be demeaned, to be devoured, to be devalued, and to be despised. Now, how do we know this? Because the scriptures make it very clear. Jesus had a true human nature. And he's saying, I am a worm. Don't ever think when you have been devalued and when you have been demeaned and when you have been despised that Jesus does not know in his experience, especially upon the cross, what that is like. It is part of that which enables Jesus to be that sympathetic high priest. We're tempted in those times to go in the wrong direction, either wanting to die because we're of no value or wanting to lash out at those who've attacked us. But Jesus says he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Jesus did not want to die because he was devalued and Jesus did not want to lash out because of anger at others. Christ submitted himself to this in order to more deeply reveal the sinfulness of human beings. And that sinfulness really shows up in what is the greatest kind of evil that can be per perpetrated by people against other people. It's when that perpetration is against those who are innocent and vulnerable. And that's what Christ was. Innocent. Nailed to the cross, he could not run away from the verbal abuse. Nailed to the cross, he could not protect himself from what they were doing against him. But we also know that he was innocent of all that was done to him. Christ proclaims the fact that he was a faithful believer in God. 
Look at verses 9 and 10. This is what he says to God. In the midst of what he's going through, he says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and, my, and from my mother's womb you've been my God. Christ is declaring his testimony that in all of his life he's trusted God. Uh, even from his birth he has trusted and confessed God as his God. He has lived an entirely faithful life before God throughout his earthly life. But you know what? We also see in verses 3 to 5 that even his enemies have known of this. Well, first, verses 3 and 5 reemphasize the fact that he was faithful Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. Again, Christ is saying all of his life he has been faithful, faithful to God. He's innocent of any human evil because of his walk with God. But then we come to verses 7 and 8. Could his enemies challenge him on this? Could the Jewish religious leaders challenge him and say, no, you're not this righteous man who trusts in God? No. Here's what they say. They mock Christ for trusting in God. They throw those words of trust back at him. 7 and 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let God deliver him. Let God rescue him, for he delights in him. They don't accuse Christ of horrendous crimes against humanity. No. They couldn't. But it's also interesting that here at the foot of the cross, they don't accuse Christ here of any crimes against God either. Rather, they mock him because of his faith and trust in God, which is a way of them recognizing that Jesus was righteous in the sight of God. Now, what Christ is doing then in this psalm is exposing not only the evil of fallen human nature, but that fallen human beings are especially capable of targeting the innocent and the godly, and especially those who are innocent and godly and vulnerable. There's a sobering truth here exhibited in what was done to Christ upon the cross. But it's a theme all throughout the Bible. Human evil knows no boundaries. The greatest perpetrations of evil flow not from one particular kind of person, but from all kinds of people. All sorts of people who are prone to perpetrate evil against the innocent. All sorts, including the kind of people that we once were, that is, hopefully we once were, hopefully we are no more. The dimensions of human evil should never, ever be underestimated. Now, the second thing then, having seen the evil of human beings which cries out for the grace of God, the need for the grace of God, what we find Jesus proclaiming here is the purpose of God, the purpose of God in his being crucified, the purpose of God in his crucifixion. 
And this is announced to us in the very first verse, where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken him? Now, look at the facts that Jesus is asserting in this psalm, beginning with this very first thing. It's a fact that Jesus Christ is forsaken on the cross. He's not delivered by God. And the fact that he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Tells us that this was God's purpose to forsake Jesus upon the cross. But secondly, it's also very clear that Christ was forsaken is not for his own sin. This also is God's purpose to reveal the fact that though Christ did not die as a sinner, he did die in the place of sinners and for sinful human beings. Purpose of God. And thirdly, the fact that through all of this, Christ on the cross can proclaim that God is holy, even though he, Jesus, is innocent of what is happening to him, even though what's happening to him is the injustice of being put to death for uh, crimes and offense he did not commit. This means that Christ knows that he's forsaken by God, not in who he is, but he's forsaken of God in the place of others. He understands it's a substitution. God is forsaking him that others might not be forsaken of God. What does it mean to be forsaken? It means to be given over to the Holy justice of God, to experience the full force of God's justice and wrath against sin. And in the psalm, we see Jesus declaring God's purpose, that he would endure the justice of God in the place of sinners. Now, we know this is what is going on on the cross because of any number of places in the New Testament, but look at two. The Apostle Paul, what he says in Galatians 3.13, looking to the cross, Paul says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. God cursed Christ. Christ became the accursed of God, forsaken of God in this way in order to redeem his people from the curse of the law. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God made Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ forsaken. The very purpose of God to forsake Christ not because Christ deserved to be forsaken, but Christ was forsaken in the place of those who do deserve to be forsaken. But he substitutes in their place in order that they might not ultimately be forsaken of God. Again, quoting the hymn writer Thomas Kelly, 
he says this about what happens to Jesus on the cross. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Christ was teaching that to satisfy the justice of God, he bore the wrath of God against sin. He was forsaken. He experienced this upon the cross to satisfy God's justice, to redeem sinners from the guilt and the power and the consequences of sin so that all who would repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in Christ might have everlasting life. I want to close once again by looking at Jude and the applications of of being committed to the gospel and the gospel principles in this way. Jude says, verses 3 and 4, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I felt it necessary to write appealing to you, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints. And then he goes into verse 4, and he talks about those certain persons who've infiltrated the church, who pervert God's grace, who want to deny our only Master and Lord. He says, contend. But then, how are we to contend? Down in verse 20 and 21 of Jude, he writes this. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Two things. Our faith. Jude says, build yourself up in your most holy faith. How do we contend rightly for the gospel? It has to begin with us and making sure that we are built up, strengthened by the word of God in our most holy faith so that we understand the gospel. Now, the second thing he mentions is prayer and praying in the Holy Spirit. Jude is pointing to the two principal means of grace. To contend for the faith, we must be faithful to know the word of God and then faithful to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit in accordance with the word of God so that we first ourselves would be faithful and then God might continue to use us to take the gospel anywhere and everywhere we go. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the scriptures. And we pray that we as Christians would never underestimate the sin, that we would look to the cross and there its guilt properly estimate. And we would look to what you were doing with Jesus there, that the deepest stroke that pierced Christ was the stroke that justice gave. Jesus died that we might live. Give us, Lord, a constant and growing faith in our Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.